Hi, everybody. My name's Terry Smith, and I'm the lead pastor of the Life Christian Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us today. Hey, if we haven't met, I hope to have the opportunity to meet you sometime soon. Typically on Sunday mornings, I stand in the lobby and shake hands with as many people as want to meet me and say hi to me and speak to me. I'm sorry that we can't do it that way today, but I hope to meet you sometime soon. And to all of our beautiful TLCC people, hey, I miss you. I wish we could be together today. We're going to be together sometime soon. I can't wait for that. I'm praying for you, thinking about you, concerned for you, and encouraged by you. So I want to talk a little bit today about something I'm calling insistent prayer. Let me start by telling a story I've told a few times over the years about how that when Sharon and I were relatively newly married and uh, had just one child, our beautiful firstborn summer, uh, I was invited to speak in Germany at, uh, some, on some U.S. military bases in some uh, youth camps there for the kids of servicemen and women and in some churches. Anyway, we traveled to Germany. We took our 13-month-old summer with us. Uh, she was a beautiful baby. I put her picture on the screen along with me to give you an opportunity to ooh and ah at how beautiful our daughter is. She's grown to be a beautiful woman. And uh, I'm sure you're laughing at seeing me with a full head of hair. Anyway, we, we traveled to Germany, and while we were there, Summer became deathly ill. She had a, a fever that was raging out of any safe zone, and nothing we could do could bring her fever down. And finally, in desperation, Sharon and I, as these real young people with our first child, made the decision to take her as quickly as we could to an emergency room in a foreign country, and uh, obviously we were just torn up by everything that was going on. The pastor who was hosting us said that he wanted to make a detour on our rush to the hospital, and he wanted somebody to pray for her. Well, frankly, I'm just thinking, I shouldn't have been thinking this, but I was thinking, let's just get to the hospital as fast as we can. But nonetheless, I acquiesced. We took the detour. We went to a U.S. military base. He knocked on the door of some military housing, uh, spoke to somebody for a few moments, and then out with him walked a woman. As I remember, maybe she was about this tall, not, not even five feet tall. I, I, was, I, was, I, was, uh, uh, I remember how small she was, and she was carrying a huge bottle of olive oil, uh, anointing oil, uh, I guess. And they came to the car. Summer was in the back seat in a car seat. Uh, this woman put oil on her head, as Scripture calls for people to do, and she prayed a prayer that was very simple. I don't remember everything she said, but I remember this as if it was yesterday. She prayed over my 13-year-old daughter who had a raging fever and was terribly sick, and she said, I command this body to align itself with the Word of God. I command this body to align itself with the Word of God. The moment that she prayed that prayer in the name of Jesus, Summer's fever immediately subsided, and she was instantly and totally healed. From that moment on, she was completely healed. 
Well, that's a dramatic example of what I call insistent prayer. Insistent prayer is a prayerful insistence that some earthly reality align itself with a higher reality, that the kingdom of God would break into this world and cause God's will to be done in the here and now. So you can get life notes uh, if you want uh, online, and you can follow along with me if you want, and you can write this down if you'd like. Insistence prayer is a prayerful insistence that some earthly reality align itself with a higher reality that the kingdom of God would break into this world and cause God's will to be done in the here and now. So, last week, I began teaching through the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. I want to show you today that the Lord's Prayer is an insistent prayer. This is what Jesus said. This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I was surprised as I studied this prayer this week that as many times as I've prayed it, as many times as I've taught through it, that I didn't realize something really simple but profound. And it's this. It's that every verb in this prayer, in the original language, is rendered in the imperative mood. Now, I know we're probably not all that interested in a grammatical discussion of the Lord's Prayer, but there's a real important point here. Now, now the definition of imperative is that, that something that's imperative is absolutely necessary or required. And when you use uh, the imperative mood in grammar, you're, you're talking about the use of a verb that pertains to the mood of the verb and the fact that it's used to command or request something with, with real insistence. So, so, every verb in the Lord's Prayer is in the imperative mood. It's, it's, it's a verb that, that, that requires a certain level of insistence. So when we say, uh, Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name, it is an insistence that his name is hallowed. We're saying it is imperative that we remember how big God is and how far beyond us he is. It's an insistent verb. Or when we say, your kingdom come, we're, we're insisting that God's kingdom come and insisting that his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. The same is true with give us our daily bread. We're saying, we have to have your provision. It's absolutely necessary. We can't live without it. When we say, forgive us, we are saying, we must have your forgiveness. Do, and then, do not let us be led into temptation. Do deliver us from evil. So, the Lord's Prayer is a prayer of insistence. In other words, if these things don't happen, it's not okay. If these things that we're praying for don't happen, we're lost. If these things don't happen, our broken world will never be fixed. 
Our world, as you know very well, is in trouble now. And we're saying to God, it is imperative that you show up in our world and that you help us in our present situation. We insist that everything in our lives and in the world around us align themselves with the word and will of God. Insistent prayer is the opposite of whatever. The reason I say that is because I read uh, that a woman uh, got up every morning and her morning prayer was simply, whatever. And when she went to bed in the evening, her evening prayer was, oh well. Well, insistent prayer is the opposite of whatever. Insistent prayer is the opposite of a fatalistic approach to God that just says, oh well. Insistent prayer is in an imperative way, asking God to come into our world and to do the things that only he can do. Look, it matters whether or not you pray, and it matters how you pray. So we've been teaching in recent weeks about visions of Jesus, how to know Jesus better, and we've been talking about the role of spiritual disciplines in, 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 in relationship to our relationship with God. A spiritual discipline is something that we do that puts us in a place where God can do the things only he can do. And, and it's important that we do these things so that God can use them as a means of grace to show up in our lives. This isn't particularly true of prayer. God wants to be in relationship with us and to do good things in our lives. But he requires that we engage our will with his will, our want with his want, and he requires that we actually ask him for the good things that he wants to do. Now, Scripture tells us that God knows what we have need of before we ask Him, but then we're also told that God requires that we ask Him even for the things He already knows that we need. He requires that we exercise our will, that we ask Him to do the thing He already wants to do. Well, this uh, is a reminder that God doesn't answer unprayed prayers. Now, I've been talking about this. I taught about this last week. But I want to get more forceful, if you will, about this today, especially in the midst of this pandemic and the terrible ways that it's affecting our world and our lives. I want to say it this way. We have the privilege of prayer, and we have the responsibility of prayer. Now, I could talk all day about how prayer will impact every area of your life in a positive way. Prayer helps you know God. Prayer brings guidance and direction. Prayer centers you and brings you peace, or uh, maybe better said, allows God to bring you peace. Prayer affects everything in our lives in an incredibly positive way, and we have the privilege of prayer. However, prayer is also a tremendous responsibility. God said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Please note in this passage the word if. It's a really big two-letter word. If, if my people pray, then I will heal their land. Here's a question for us. What happens if we don't 
pray. Another way to say this is to say that prayer is determinative. In other words, prayer determines outcomes. This is not an uncommon thought in Christian theology. This is based in in the whole counsel of God as shown to us in the Holy Scriptures. Prayer is determinative. Uh, So, uh, for instance, uh, the father of Methodism, the, 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 the Methodist movement, John Wesley said, God will do nothing on earth except in answer to believing prayer. The father of uh, the reform movement, uh, the, the, the scripturally based Presbyterians, John Calvin said, words fail to explain how necessary prayer is. The keeper of Israel is inactive, as if forgetting us when he sees us idle and mute. One of the great thought leaders of Pentecostalism, Jack Hayford, a great man, a great uh, scholar and writer, said, you and I can help decide which of these two things, blessing or cursing, happens on earth. We will determine whether God's goodness is released towards specific situations. Prayer is the determining factor. What's the point I'm making? I'm making the point that it matters whether or not we pray. There is an if part to God showing up and healing our land. And the if is, if my people pray. There's a great story in the Old Testament book of Exodus. It's a story of, you know, Exodus, I should say, is the story of God's people being delivered from Egypt and moving toward the promised land. What God had intended for them uh, since before the beginning of time and had promised their father Abraham some 400 years before. As they were on their way, God's people were attacked by a group of people called the Amalekites. Not important to get into the details of that. I'll just say that Moses, the leader, the man of God, said to Joshua, his right-hand man and the, the, the one in charge of his army, to go and confront the Amalekites where they were headquartered during this siege. And so when Moses said this, though, he didn't just tell Joshua to go fight the Amalekites. Moses said, while you fight them, I'm going to go up on the hill and I'm going to stand with God's staff in my hand and my hands extended toward God. And here's what Exodus 17 says. Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Ur, uh, the brother of Moses and one of the leaders of Israel, Moses, Aaron, and Ur went up to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Ur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army. And Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner, or Jehovah Nissi, he said, For hands were lifted up to the throne of God. I love it. Hands were lifted up to the throne of God. This is a powerful picture of intercessory prayer. An intercessor stands between God and some human situation and asks God to bring his will and power to bear into that situation in a way that affects the outcome. 
An intercessor, if you please, holds their hands up to the throne of God. See, the Amalekites wanted to destroy God's dreams for his people. They, the, the Amalekites, were in a cosmic sense evil. They, they attacked God's people. They wanted to keep them from the promised land. There was a lot at stake. God had a dream for those people just like God has a dream for each of us. So what did Moses do? He lifted up his hands to the throne of God. Again, a powerful picture of insistent intercessory prayer. I'm going to stand here or I'm going to sit here and I'm going to lift my hands up to you, God, until you come and do what only you can do. And as long as Moses prayed, the victory was won. Now, look, we need Joshua's. Again, Joshua was the guy actually down there in the valley fighting the battle while Moses was up on the mountain praying. Joshua's army obviously was essential to winning this victory. Right now in our world, the Joshua's are the medical doctors and nurses and hospital staffs and scientists and pharmaceutical companies and ventilator makers and mask producers and grocery store workers and so on. At the Life Christian Church, the Joshua's include our Plus Life teams mobilizing to serve those affected by this pandemic and serving, and our pastoral team who are serving people in need in our congregation, and our teams working to make sure that we stay connected with each other and focused on good things through TLCC TV and so on. There is a physical battle to be fought. There's a lot of work to be done. Okay, But even more importantly, there's a spiritual battle to be fought. This battle is fought through spiritual methods, especially prayer. If we don't fight this battle, the battle may not be won. If my people pray, God said, then I'll hear from heaven and heal their land Hey, listen, I want to say to those of you on the front lines right now, to those of you who are part of the TLCC family, who are out there risking your lives during this pandemic, to our medical doctors, to our nurses, to others on the front lines, I want you to know that you're not alone. We're going to keep our hands up. We're going to keep our hands up as you fight the battle, and we're going to believe that you're going to feel a power greater than yourself that will help you do the good that you're called to do. Okay, so how do we pray? This is the question the disciples asked Jesus. They said, we see you praying all the time. Teach us to pray. And to this question, he gave them the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to read it again. He said, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day, or give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So last week we discussed how this is the way Jesus taught us to approach God in prayer. These are the things we should be thinking about as we pray. It's not just repeating the prayer mindlessly. Jesus would have called that vain repetition. It's, it's saying this prayer, literally, but, but, it's, but, but even more than that, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lens through which we view all of prayer. Uh, and so last week we, we started to kind of talk through the parts of this prayer. 
We talked about how important that we see God as our Father and, and our relationship to Him as sons and daughters. We um, talked about how important it is that His name is hallowed and what that means. Today I want to discuss the rest of this prayer, and I'm going to focus most of my time on the next part of the prayer. I think it's critically important. That's the part of the prayer that says, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I'm going to take a minute, several minutes, with this part of the prayer. This is the official teachy part of today's talk, okay? So if you're sitting on a couch and watching this, uh, you might want to sit on the edge of your seat, stay awake for a minute, because I'm about to say some things that are really, really important. But uh, it takes a minute to kind of dig in and, and get it. So, so hang in here with me for a moment uh, because I think uh, we're going to learn some things together that are really important and practical in our lives. So the kingdom of God was a central theme, if not the central theme, of the ministry of Jesus. He talked about the kingdom of God, or Matthew refers to it as the kingdom of heaven in the same way Mark, Luke, and John, the other gospel writers, refer to the kingdom of God. It's the same thing. He talked about the kingdom of God more than any other single subject. The kingdom of God, put simply, is the realm of God's established rule. The kingdom of God is the realm of God's established rule. In our context, it's the rule of heaven over earth. The reason I say our context is because it's important to know that God rules the entire universe. His rule is established. But the earth is a special case, if you please. So, so uh, in our context, when we talk about the kingdom of God and the prayer, the insistence that the kingdom of God come, we're talking about God's rule over things on the earth and the earth. Wherever God's rule is established, we can say that the kingdom has come. And we know, that the kingdom, we know that the kingdom has come to something when we see God's will or what God wants being done in that situation. So when Jesus came to the earth, he inaugurated a new era of the kingdom of God on this planet. He gave us, those of us who believe in him, access to his kingdom. In fact, he said in John chapter 3 that when we're born again, when we confess our faith in Jesus and we're made alive in our spirit, born again, that we can see the kingdom of God and that we enter the kingdom of God. So we would say that when we believe in Jesus, the kingdom has come to us. Uh, we enter the kingdom, and the kingdom enters us, if you please. And then as we grow in our relationship with Jesus, the kingdom comes to rule in more and more areas of our lives. It's, it's, it, 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 it comes to us, but then it progressively, as we grow in relationship with God, begins to bring God's dominion to more and more areas of our lives. Included in all of this, having entered the kingdom and having the kingdom enter us, is the fact that through prayer, we can actually bring the kingdom of God to bear in earthly situations. We, kingdom people, become kingdom bringers or kingdom establishers. So, when we look at the world around us, especially now, we know that there are a lot of things that aren't operating according to God's will. We see that there are a lot of things in our world, especially now, it's very apparent, that aren't the way things are supposed to be. 
Now, I know there are a lot of questions right now as to how, you know, could God allow a terrible pandemic to happen and so on. These are good and important questions. I can't treat them at length today, but I will treat them briefly in the context of the kingdom of God discussion. Remember, in the beginning, God gave humanity a choice as to whether or not to live under his rule. And we chose not to. We chose, rather, to live with the knowledge, if you'll remember, of good and evil, which is why there's so much evil. Though God rules the entire universe, he allowed the course of this planet to be determined by human choices. God wanted it to be that way. He didn't have to do it that way. He chose to do it that way. And human beings chose the knowledge of good and evil. Now, so in our world, we see a lot of good and we see a lot of evil. Sometimes it feels like, like right now, like evil or some manifestation of evil is winning. Um, well, it shouldn't be a surprise because of the decision of a, the man and woman in the garden and because of the role of the evil one, the tempter. Satan became what Scripture calls the God, small g, of this age. That's 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, if you're interested. Uh, that we, we, because of our choice, we gave evil a certain degree of power. But a big part of the good news is that Jesus came to bring us back to what God wanted in the beginning. And that through Jesus, we are given another choice between good and evil, between God and evil. I love this quote by the great C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity where he wrote, enemy-occupied territory, that's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king, Jesus, has landed, you might say, landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. If you please, Jesus came to raise up an army of kingdom people who are taking this planet back. Through the cross and, and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus defeated the evil one and brought the possibility of actualizing the defeat of evil in our world and in our lives. Though God won the ultimate battle for this planet on the cross, he decided, and I think this is important, you know, how, can, how do we see the coexistence of good and evil and the terrible clash that seems to be going on? The fact is that, as I'll describe a little more fully in just a moment, though God won the victory over evil through Jesus and what he did through the death, burial, and resurrection, he allowed good and evil to coexist for a season. Why did he do this? Because, again, he has set it up. Let me say it again. Again, he has set it up to allow people to be able to make a choice. And people can't make a choice if there's only one option. And so, again, we're back in the place of the first man and woman having our own opportunity as individuals and a people to choose whether we want good or evil and ultimately, really, what kingdom we choose to be a part of. See, God doesn't force us to do his will. In the beginning, through human choice, paradise was lost. Now, progressively, through human choice, paradise is regained. 
But this brings about a clash of kingdoms, if you please. A clash between good things and bad things. A clash between good and evil that is sometimes difficult to understand and to know how to respond to. So you'll see, for instance, one passage in the Gospels where Jesus says, it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And then you'll see another passage in the Gospels where Jesus says, the kingdom of God suffers violence and the violent take it by force. To which one would ask an understandable question if they're still awake. And the question would be, if it's a father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, why would we have to violently take it by force? Well, the reason is, is there's an opposing force that's trying to keep God's good plans from being done on the earth. And God has enlisted us to be a part of his army, if you please, to be on the front lines of actually establishing his rule in earthly situations. We're fighting against evil. And that fight is manifest, first of all, in the spiritual realm, and then it shows up in our attempt to do good in this world. But don't forget what the Apostle Paul taught us. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, Put on the full armor of God, suit up, get ready for battle, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying. Let me just say a couple more things about this and then I'll move on quickly. A great way to describe this is to think about what happened between D-Day and V-Day in the Second World War. D-Day happened in, in uh, 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 June, uh, as I remember it, June of 1944. And uh, that's when the Allied forces attacked Europe at the point of Normandy. And when they were successful, everybody knew that the war was over. The war was over. There was no way Hitler and the Axis powers could win. The war was over. But then there ensued what some have called the mopping up operation. That's from V-Day, pardon me, from D-Day, from D-Day in Normandy to V-Day, which, as I remember right, was May of 1945. It was a year of, of fighting a battle that had really already been won, but had to be secured. See, the cross, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus was, was D-Day. The fact is the victory that needs to be won was won. Scripture tells us that at the cross, Jesus disarmed the powers that oppose us and made a spectacle of them. But now we're involved in that season betwixt and between. The kingdom is here already, but not yet. So the kingdom came through Jesus. It's coming through us. It will finally be established at the second coming of Christ. But we're in that place where there's this great battle between good and evil, and we're participants in it. And the key to winning that battle is really, it's really this. It's to pray that the kingdom of God comes so that we see his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. We have to pray insistently that God's kingdom come. So let me talk then quickly about the rest of this prayer and then bring my talk to a close. Here's the next insistent prayer. It's give us today our daily bread. Give us today our daily bread. I've been focusing kind of on the big cosmic picture. 
But it's essential that you know that your Heavenly Father wants to give you what you need today and that He wants you to ask Him even insistently for what you need. It is imperative. You need to say, Father, that you give me what I need to sustain me today. If you don't help me, if you don't help me, go ahead and tell Him that. If you don't help me, I don't know that I'm going to have what I need. What do you need? Do you need food? Do you need finances? Do you need healing in a relationship? Do you need courage right now? Do you need to be free from anxiety and fear? What is daily bread to you right now? Ask the Father for what you need. The next part of the prayer, forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. I like a quote from Frederick Beekner who said, To confess your sins to God is not to tell God anything he doesn't know. Until you confess them, however, they are the abyss between you. When you confess them, they become the golden gate bridge, a path, if you please, into the presence of God. See, we've all sinned, and we all sin. Only God can forgive us our sins. Our debt is to him, and only God can help us become more like Jesus and sin less and do good more. But this begins with confessing our sins. John wrote to the church, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So when you pray, when you pray, make sure that you get honest with God about things he already knows about your life that are less than what they should be, about sin, about, about the ways that you think that you're falling short of being in relationship with a holy God. Confess your sins. He will forgive your sins so that you can stand in right relationship with him and so that you can participate with him and what he's doing in this world. And then the other part of this is, Even this isn't just about us and God. We make this point a lot around here. God insists that when we ask for forgiveness, we do it while forgiving those who have sinned against us. This frees us from the prison of unforgiveness, and it allows God to do things in our lives that he can't do if we have unforgiveness and resentment in our hearts. The next and final part of the prayer, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. I actually like this translation better. It's, and don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. Pope Francis has made a big deal about this part of the Lord's Prayer. I believe it's been changed for the Catholic Church. I'm not sure, but he, he made the point that God doesn't lead us into, into temptation, and the right way to say this is don't let us be led into temptation. The fact is, I agree with that prayer. We're saying, God, don't let us be led into temptation. Look, we're all tempted with all kinds of things, things that if unconfessed and undealt with will keep us from God's best for our lives. We often think of classic sins, sins like the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes or the pride of life, and we should think about that, and we should think about the temptations in the world around us in those kind of classic ways. Today I feel like focusing, though, at the end of this talk more on the temptation to give up, to put your hands down, to give in to a fatalistic view that sounds like whatever or oh well. Today I feel like 
challenging us to ask God to help us not give in to the temptation of doubt and fear and anxiety. You know, Scripture calls unbelief a sin. I've read some scholars who think that unbelief is actually the greatest sin. Heavenly Father, don't let us give in to the temptation to live in fear and unbelief during this terrible season in our world. And Father, we should pray, deliver us from the evil one. See, Jesus taught us that we insist to be delivered from evil and the evil one. Jesus knew what it was to be tempted by the evil one and what it was like to be delivered from the evil one. So we pray that with insistence. Listen, let me close with this. Let me just talk to you for a moment about about this moment that we're all facing. I've been alluding to it all through this message today, but obviously we're in in an incredibly unusual time. Uh, And so I've been thinking this thought, okay? I've been thinking this thought. It's this, that, that Easter is coming. I want us to believe that if we pray an insistent prayer, that a resurrection is coming, victory is coming. Now, I can talk about Easter coming in, I think it's two weeks now, Easter is coming in that way, but I'm talking more about a great victory over evil, a triumph that's astounding. I've been thinking about how Easter is coming in the midst of all the carnage around us, the constant reports of the spread of the COVID-19 virus, learning personally that the infection has spread to several of my personal friends. Uh, You know, I'm thinking as you are about the terrible setbacks in our economy, the anxiety and fear and people that I love, the concern I feel for all of you. And in the midst of all of this, I've been thinking, Easter is coming. There are those times when it feels like evil is winning, when we know that things aren't the way they ought to be and we're praying insistent prayers and it doesn't seem that our insistent prayer is being answered in the dramatic and immediate way that I described at the beginning of this talk. So what do we do? Do we stop praying? In my devotions this week, I just in the normal course of reading through Scripture, I my next reading was reading about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I I couldn't help but think as I, as I read this how that Jesus in Gethsemane is praying an anguished prayer where even though he knows that the Father is going to raise him from the dead in just a few days, he still wants to be saved from the terror of the moment. Yet God the Father, his will being done, knew that Jesus needed to go through the cross in order to get to the resurrection. But as a man, Jesus, Jesus, it seems, was tempted to fear and to doubt. Mark chapter 12, they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said. He fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. The hour, the hour. He he was having trouble in the hour, believing for what was going to happen in three days. And then 
He prayed, Abba, Father, the same words he encourages us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Everything is possible from you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And then Luke tells us that being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Guys, he was under so much stress that blood came from his pores. You know, a a rare medical condition where the capillaries around the the sweat glands can rupture under extreme anxiety and stress. He was under so much pressure in that moment that sweat poured like blood from his body. At that moment, even though Jesus knew that God the Father would raise him from the dead, he was tempted to give in to fear. It didn't look like at that moment his prayers were being answered, but Easter was coming. See, the fact is his prayers were being answered. He couldn't see it in that hour. Now, he had the ability, he knew that he was going to be raised from the dead, but even though he knew it in that hour, In that hour, he was anguished, he was troubled, he was distressed. Guys, this is a human response to a terrible moment. But see, Easter was coming. So while the man, Jesus, was deeply distressed and troubled, God was working. God was working It was going to be okay. God was working. Easter was coming. And while the man Jesus was overwhelmed with sorrow, God was working. Easter was coming. And while the man Jesus was so anguished that blood came out of his pores, God was working. Easter was coming. I think we might need to be reminded of that today as we pray and when it seems like our prayers may not be answered and when we're tempted, when we're tempted to be overwhelmed by the anguish of the moment, God is working. We're going to see a better day. Victory is coming. Easter is coming. 